0: This is Macro Horizons, episode 109, Bond Ides of March, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of March 1st. And we're reminded that despite the struggles of celebrity marriages, there's always 2024. Kanye.
1: The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries.
0: Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. The week just passed in the treasury market was a very pivotal one. We got the backup in yields that we had been anticipating with the target of 148 to 151 in 10-year yields achieved. The market pressed a little bit beyond there, but we have managed to stabilize somewhere slightly below 150. Now, 150 has some clear and obvious psychological significance. The market does love round numbers, but the fact of the matter is this move has a slightly different character than what we saw earlier in the year. Earlier in the year, the narrative was driven by inflation expectations. We saw that in break-even space with real yields effectively unchanged at roughly negative 100 basis points in the 10-year space. What has occurred over the course of the last week and a half has been an increase of almost 40 basis points in real rates, and that price action has effectively served to tighten policy while the Fed is actively easing. And as a result, we are entering a phase where we've started to hear from global central bankers, the ECB in particular, that they're getting a bit nervous about the extent of the sell-off and the potential for the rise in real rates to undermine risk assets and to undermine the outlook going forward. Now, we're still in the process of progressing from the mid-pandemic to the post-pandemic stage of the recovery, so there's a great deal of uncertainty that remains embedded in the economic outlook. The week also saw the beginnings of what could be more significant wobbles in the equity market. Now, an occasional 2-3% down day for stocks isn't going to trigger the type of increase in equity volatility that ultimately leads through to tighter financial conditions. However, the Fed is in a difficult position because if they remain sidelined and don't at least contribute to the conversation of caution against this recent backup in rates, it'll be reasonable to interpret that as a green light for even higher yields. Imagine a situation in which we are faced with 175 or 2% 10 year rates that will undermine global equities even further. And that's where we get that 5, 10, 15, 20% correction in equities that the Fed will then appear to be behind the curve on rather than managing to forward financial conditions expectations as they have throughout much of the pandemic thus far. There's also little question that the uninspired takedown of the five-year and the record large tail for the seven-year, the $62 billion auction, has provided some evidence for the bond vigilantes. Now, we maintain that it won't be supply itself that gets the market to reprice to a higher plateau. However, it is difficult to argue with the lack of sponsorship for the seven-year auction at a moment when the market was actively repricing to a new macro narrative.
2: So, Ian, it's uh, pretty rare when we start our conversations talking about a seven-year auction, but I think we have to. Yeah, I think seven-year auctions are one of the benchmarks
0: that typically comes and goes and has very little influence on the treasury market. Now, to be fair... The price action over the course of the last couple weeks has been about much more than supply. However, it was the results of the seven-year auction that really catalyzed the bearish price action that was
2: already in place. And it was very interesting to see the fact that despite what could otherwise be considered a very healthy intraday concession for the new bonds, the speed of the move going into the auction that brought 10-year yields beyond 160 basis points really translated to some primary market participants simply not being willing to get in the way of the sell-off. That's why we saw the largest tail for a seven-year auction on record, the lowest bid to cover for a seven-year auction on record, and the lowest non-dealer takedown since September 2014. Well there's also something else at play that I think is worth acknowledging. The bulk of the backup in
0: rates until this week had primarily been a reflationary trade. So we saw that playing out with higher 10-year break-evens up against 225 at one point, although they've stabilized a bit lower from that. And that's certainly consistent with one of the major risks for this point in the cycle. But what has occurred is the market has transitioned from pricing in greater term premium and a steeper curve to an emphasis on the timing of the Fed's liftoff. And we can see this in the euro dollars market, where now the December 2022 contract has a hike fully priced in. I'll make the argument that that's far too aggressive, given the struggles that the Fed had winding down its last QE program.
2: I completely agree. I mean, we're still in a world where the Fed is expanding its balance sheet at $120 billion a month, Across the board, we've heard from Fed speakers that it's far too early to even start the conversation about when tapering bond purchases might be appropriate. And using the order of monetary policy operations from last cycle, if the dialogue around tapering has not yet commenced, isn't it far too soon to be contemplating rates off the effective lower bound? Realistically speaking, the Fed would need at least six
0: to nine months to wind down its bond buying program, and they've already committed to keeping QE in place into the end of 2021. So this implies that if all goes according to plan, which does have a fair degree of optimism built into it, we'll see the Fed's last balance sheet expanding purchase of treasuries occur in the second half of 2022. It would be very atypical for the Fed to quickly then shift to hiking
2: rates, especially in light of the Fed's behavior between 2013 and 2015. And remember back in that instance, even after Yellen's first hike, it took a full year for the committee to execute their second one. So the fact that the outlook on the recovery and monetary policy is an issue that it will be important to be mindful of as the March 17th Fed meeting approaches. And given the scheduled Fed speak we have during this upcoming week, Powell's now scheduled to give a speech on Thursday, and it will be very topical to see how he addresses these developments. And if he sticks with what has been the party line of a comfort with higher rates or starts to walk back that theme somewhat. Well, I
0: could envision him walking that theme back by focusing on real yields rather than nominal yields. If we look at the 35 basis point backup in 10-year real yields – It's very clear that this is the type of move that should get monetary policymakers nervous. Now, we've heard from several ECB officials that they're monitoring the backup in real yields, and if we see a comparable tone shift from the Fed, that speaks to the notion that the Fed might be more willing to get involved in terms of altering the composition of the current bond buying program. It will also serve as important signaling for investors who have started to view good news as bad as it were. So when we get strong economic data, it reduces the urgency on the part of lawmakers to deliver fiscal bailout 3.0. Now, we've seen some of that play out in the equity market, although a key part of what's playing out in equities at the moment has to do with the tech sector responding to higher yields.
2: And in thinking about what sectors performed the best during the pandemic, tech comes to mind. So if in fact, journey toward herd immunity is progressing faster than expected and a return to some version of normal may be closer on the horizon than initially expected, then maybe it is a little bit reasonable to expect some of those notable outperformers to retrace to a degree to say nothing of the influence of higher borrowing costs on some of these firms. I'm very
0: cognizant of the this time it's different arguments that really revolve around the fact that this Massive recession has been caused by a global pandemic. There's an approved vaccine that is being distributed throughout the world with the goal of herd immunity. And once we transition back to commerce as usual, that that should lead to a roaring rebound in the global economy. It's difficult not to question some of those assumptions, however, because the, all of the stimulus that's been going into the system doesn't have the same implication that prior stimulus has had. And by this, I simply mean when the economy is fully functioning and you roll out transfer payments of $600, $700, $800 billion to the economy, you'd expect that money to be used for consumption. In this environment, however, what we see, and this is evidenced by the very high savings rate, is that the subset of the labor force that was hardest hit by the pandemic is effectively living stimulus check to stimulus check. And so, unlike adding to disposable income, the stimulus efforts have simply created a financial bridge to get that sector of the labor force through to the point where those jobs are once again available in the economy. My concern is that herd immunity does not imply that those jobs are immediately going to come back. In fact, the willingness on the part of roughly 25% of the economy to work remotely and the broader implications from that suggest that the transition to the new normal is going to take longer than simply the span of 2021.
2: And this brings up a great conversation I had with the client this week regarding the massive amount of optimism that's made its way into the treasury market. And the discussion really focused on exactly the dynamic that you're talking about, Ian. So far, what consumption we have seen has been principally a function of largesse from Washington. The fact of the matter is, there are still 10 million fewer jobs now than there were when we entered the pandemic. In an environment where there's still unquestionably a large degree of slack in the labor market, it's going to be very difficult to see sustained upward pressure on wages, which ultimately will flow through to the quote-unquote true type of consumption that the Fed would ultimately like to see. This is a theme that promises to persist, and the latest update on the state of the labor market via February's jobs numbers will be closely watched in Friday's BLS print.
0: I'll be keeping an eye on labor market participation as well as average hourly earnings. The consensus is for a two-tenths of a percent increase in average hourly earnings. Although watching the composition of labor will be key, because if we continue to see struggles for the low-skill, low-wage earning sector, that will create natural upward pressure on average hourly earnings, simply because those jobs won't factor into the equation.
2: Bringing it back just a bit to the price action itself, we had had an initial bearish target of that 148 to 151 zone in 10-year yields. That's now been traded and breached for a short time, going into this highly consequential week for treasuries, is the bias here for a bit of a period of consolidation, an extension of the sell-off, or maybe more substantial dip buying? That is the operative question. Are we witnessing the beginning of a
0: move that will get 10-year yields to 2%, 2 25 or are we seeing the traditional seasonal patterns play out where we have upward pressure on rates at the beginning of the year as green shoots and reflationary optimism is priced in only to be met with the realities of the economic data cycle, thereby creating a cap for rates as we see a drift lower throughout the summer. That's my base case scenario, but it is a unique cycle. And as a result of the course of the next week, I think that the right trade is to be sidelined with the understanding that while one might miss the first seven to 10 basis points of the next big move, prudence in selling weakness or chasing a rally is
2: difficult to overstate and throughout the pandemic, the shape of the curve has been pretty much entirely a function of duration's performance. But now that we've reached something of an inflection point where monetary policy expectations have changed, and now we have some normalization reflected in pricing, it's not necessarily the case that the shape of 5's 30s is purely a result of where 30-year yields are trending. So from that perspective, there could be some more nuanced trading opportunities presented in the shape of the curve. In the event, we do see the Fed start to push back on some of the bringing forward of rate hike expectations that we've witnessed over this past week. So the takeaway from what you're saying is that there's a subset of the
0: market that simply hasn't got the memo not to fight the Fed. Maybe it got caught in the spam filter? You mean like all of our research? Exactly. In the week ahead, the biggest challenge for the treasury market will be figuring out whether or not the recent repricing is truly sustainable, or if investors are willing to push further into the territory of cheaper and steeper. A continued sell-off in the long end of the curve beyond 150 in 10-year yields does necessitate bringing forward Fed rate hike expectations, and as such, that would imply that the next level of the move is going to be driven by the belly, particularly the five-year sector, as the market builds in some assumption that this cycle will differ so dramatically from prior cycles that the Fed will be able to truncate tapering end of QE and the first rate hike into a period of less than 24 months. We remain skeptical that that will come to fruition. Nonetheless, that is the trade that's currently underway. We do have a variety of Fed speak on the horizon. And given the comments from the ECB and other non Fed global central banking officials regarding the backup in rates, the market will be very attuned to any official commentary on the outright level of real yields, as well as the recent backup. Now, to be fair, 10-year tips yields are still at negative 65, 75 basis points. So it's not a situation where on a true outright level that this should be limiting. Rather, it is the trajectory and the momentum that will have investors concerned. It is jobs week. We have the February non-farm payroll print with a consensus of roughly 125, 130,000 jobs. Now it has been a while since the treasury market has actually traded off of the economic data. Unlike in the beginning of the pandemic, When investors were willing to dismiss the economic data as simply lacking context for the magnitudes of the moves. What we have seen now is the reliance on the assumption that there will be more stimulus coming out of Washington has led investors to effectively write off the first quarter. So, regardless of how the labor market performs over the course of the next several months, the outlook for rates appears not to be impacted. We're concerned that there will eventually be an inflection point when the data has just gotten so bad that macro expectations need to readjust, and our bias is that they will readjust to the downside. Now, that isn't to imply that we are poised for another repeat of 2020 by any means, Rather, that the path out of the pandemic and back to full recovery, so some version of growth seen in 2019, is not going to occur this year. Rather, the runway needed for full recovery is much longer than the market is currently assuming. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. With the Ides of March approaching and the largest sell-off in five years, we cannot help but ponder, A2 Powell? Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode so please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingan at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
1: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com macrohorizons slash legal.